This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Lee Sales and Annabel Crabb might be known as two of Australia's most high-profile political journalists, but they're also very close friends who love to laugh and share stories on the podcasts they've hosted together for years. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Lee and Annabelle, who are refreshingly candid about what goes on beyond their day jobs. The duo share more about the close-knit community of listeners they've built over the years through their podcast, Chat 10 Looks 3, and why they see so much value in strong female friendships. Lee and Annabelle also give us some insights into their new book called Well Hello, where they ponder all things social media, friendship, and not taking yourself too seriously. Annabelle Crabley Sales, welcome to the Leadership Lessons. It's such an exciting thing to have you both here. I'm going to start with an acknowledgement of country and like to acknowledge that I'm on Cameragle land and I pay my deep respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this land and the privilege we have to live and work on Aboriginal land. And I understand that you're both on Gadigal land, so pay our respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging as well. So how exciting. I'm going to ask you both, since you're both seasoned interviewers, tips for interviewing the two of you? The main thing I think in any interview is to be well prepared, but then be prepared to cast aside your preparation in the moment because you're listening to what the other person is saying and just responding as you go. And that tends to be what leads to a good conversation because you then enter a kind of flow where you're not just reading down a pre-prepared list of questions. Annabelle, is that going to work with the two of you? <laughs> Look, um, instant digression is the key, I have to say. I agree with Lee there because you can tell when someone's got a prepared list of questions and they are just asking them and then asking the next one. Whereas the key is definitely have a million post-it notes in the person's book is a really good start. Like that's an awesome start because it tells your interviewee that you've absolutely read and absorbed the book. So that's good. Yeah, but like that's the most exciting thing about interviewing someone, I think, or even just a really good conversation is when you ask a question that you've thought about asking and they respond and they respond in a way that you haven't necessarily anticipated and then suddenly you're off into a little fascinating highway or byway and that can reveal the most fabulous things in an interviewee. Well, let's jump right in. You've both the podcast hosts of Chat 10 Looks 3, which I have to admit I didn't listen to until I got a copy of your book. And the book is like listening to a podcast. It's like listening to this conversation, this shambolic, rambling, lovely conversation between friends. And it made me feel like I was there with my friends solving the problems of the world where you hit 10 topics in five minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about how it started? I know it's in the book. I know it's in the podcast. But for the listeners who aren't familiar with the podcast, Lee. I mean, we sort of have differing recollections, actually, of how it started. But we'd often catch up and really enjoy each other's company. And I think I would always be saying, well, we should do something together professionally. Like, it'd be so fun. We could write a book. We could do a TV show. We could do this, that. And Crab would go, oh, well, that'd be great. But when do you imagine we're going to do this? You know, at the time, I think we had all of our kids at that point. So there's five kids. At at that stage, I think they were all under about the age of six. And it was always like, well, we just don't have time to do anything. (laughs) And then we kept kind of pulling the bar back and back and back and back to say, well, what would we have time for? And it came down to, well, maybe, you know, people have started doing these podcast things. Maybe if we could just do one that was a conversation 
conversation about things that we're interested in that we don't do in our day jobs, like books and television and film and music and cooking, maybe we could just have a conversation. And we didn't really have any expectations about who might listen to it or how long we would do it for. And so we just kind of started doing it to see what would happen. And then it went from there. I think I actually had my third child in order to avoid writing a musical with you, Lee. And Lee, that's because you're a musical junkie, right? Yeah, I just, I love music. I mean, I have no recollection of what Crab's talking about at all. I think she's probably inventing it. But yeah, I do. I love music. And so um, that's something that I often like to talk about because I do that next to never in my day job. So I think our friend Bryce as well wants me to write like a cabaret show with him about God only knows what. So yeah, there's always cockamamie schemes being hatched around Crab's kitchen table. I think music with the politicians on the 730 report could be really endearing. I've heard a couple of them play their instruments and I strongly disagree. <laughs> Seriously, if you even offer a whiff of that, you'll have Tony Burke. <laughs> oh, that was exactly who was in my mind, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we won't go there then. So you started a podcast, but actually it's ended up being this incredible community of people that come together to help each other and support each other. And I was flicking through some of the Facebook posts and some of the things that the community has done to help each other. That's incredible, right? Starting a podcast is easy. Writing a book is easy. But building a community in this day and age where we are all quite isolated, especially now. Well, when you when you say we built a community, you might be giving us a bit too much credit Lee and I, we don't use Facebook that much, right? We only use it to go and check out the Chat 10 Look 3 group. And what happened with the podcast was that we started to feel after a while that there was this community of super engaged listeners. And sometimes we could feel them kind of like trying to contact each other through us, like they'd contact us and say, say this on the podcast, you know. So our then producer, Kathy, suggested a Facebook group and it really took off. And I think this community of people who are interested in books and cooking and, you know, kind, smart people, I think they just wanted to find each other. And we were kind of just the community fluffers, really, nothing more. (laughs) So, you know, we're in and out of that group, but it sort of functions independently of us. It's just people who love to get together and talk about the sorts of things that we talk about in the podcast. Lee, can you share with us some of the stories of the community, of the Facebook group and some of the things they've done to help each other? Because I think those stories are extraordinary. Yeah, there's been some really beautiful things that people have done for each other in that group. There's kind of funny but garden variety ones of, you know, somebody's lost their glasses in Broome and so the word goes out, if anyone knows anyone in Broome, can they keep an eye out for them? And then, you know, the lost glasses get miraculously found. There's lots of variations of that theme or trying to get things from one side of the country to another in a hurry. That happens as well. One of my favourites was a woman in Brisbane who posted that she hadn't really been going out very much and she had to go to a wedding and she was feeling really frumpy and just down and she just wanted some advice about what to wear and, you know, she didn't feel like she knew how to do hair or makeup or anything. And this woman, she was travelling to Melbourne for the wedding, this woman jumped on and said, hey, I'm a makeup artist and if you want, I could meet you at the airport and do your makeup in the airport toilet before you head off to the wedding and help you out a bit, which she did. And anyway, then the first woman posted a photo of herself a couple of days later looking really pretty on the way to the wedding and she said, look, I didn't say this in the original post because I didn't want to overshare, but the reason I felt so down and just blah is because my partner died about a year ago and this is the first thing I've had to go to by myself. And there's a million lovely stories like that. Yeah, I kind of feel, especially in lockdown, 
like we're all so desperate for stories like that. You know, happy I found out that somebody's friend was having a baby yesterday and it just gave me such joy to know that somewhere there's this lady having a baby. Yeah, just good news at the moment it's in short supply and so people like things that make them feel good about human nature, I think. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't have to be a sort of Pollyanna view of the world. I mean, you know, our podcast and our Facebook group don't have to be everything to everyone, right? Or, you know, they don't ignore that there's dreadful things going on in the world. But like, it's just sort of, I guess, a specific little place that you can go just to talk about books and cooking and funny stuff. And that's when we started the Facebook group, we asked people not to talk about politics just because it would make it tricky for us with our day jobs. And actually the unintended consequence of that is that a lot of their heat has been taken out of the standard social media environment and the byproduct has been a place that, you know, doesn't ask a lot of people but does ask them to leave those divisive issues at the door Um, and obviously not all of social media could be like that and nor should it but it's kind of nice to have a little oasis every now and again. Well, there aren't many places on social media you can go where there's no political views and there's no divisive views and, I mean, really, you know, it's far and few between at the moment. So what I thought we might do, if it's all right with you, is I'll throw some words at you that I found really intriguing in the book and we'll see what comes out of it. So the first one, at least smiling, <laughs> probably worried about what's coming. The first one, <laughs> wardrobe spreadsheet versus floor-drobe. So wardrobe spreadsheet refers to, for 7.30, I have a six-week cycle of clothes that are rostered. So on any given day, I know, well, today I'm wearing black blouse, tomorrow I'm wearing green jacket or whatever. And it's for two reasons. One is because it takes mental load, as most women would know, trying to figure out what you're going to wear on any given day takes up energy. And sometimes I have such busy days, I, I don't want to use up energy thinking what I'm going to wear or I just don't have time. You know, if I'm trying to prep for the prime minister, I don't want to waste 20 minutes trying to figure out what outfits back from the dry cleaner or whatever. And it also helps out Chris Sal, who does my makeup because then he knows every day what color I'm coming in wearing. And so he can plan his kind of day. But this is an endless source of amusement to Crab, who finds it hilarious that I'm so well organized. And Chris and I also have nicknames for all of the outfits because it's a good shorthand way of explaining what you want. So for example, there's a new outfit that I got recently, which is a pair of white wide leg pants and a white oversized white jacket that outfit's called mum's third wedding (laughs) we've got another one that's a hot pink sort of a-line skirt with a navy top with a sort of very elegant white thing down the center of it and that's called regional italian airline because it looks posh but it doesn't look as posh as Alitalia, it's not the main Italian airline, but regional airlines would still look very posh. So it's regional Italian airline. So if Chris wants to know what I'm wearing that week, I'll say, Mum's third wedding, the Matrix, the Penny Wong, and regional Italian airline. And he knows straight away what I'm talking about. Anyway, on the list that landed in the book, there was an outfit referred to as the wetsuit. And Crab didn't know that all the outfits have nicknames. And so when she saw the roster, she was like, Why is she wearing a wetsuit one night in week six? <laughs> Whereas Crab has the floor drive, she just throws everything on the floor and just picks up whatever's at the top of the pile. I have to admit I've got much more alignment with Annabelle's way of doing things than with your way of doing things. I would love to be a spreadsheet wardrobe person but I can't imagine putting that together. Annabelle, thoughts? <laughs> just so many thoughts, so many <laughs> thoughts. Uh, it just makes me absolutely just weak with laughter. <laughs> but listen to 
what it does remind me is, and I just think about this all the time at the moment, particularly after the last couple of years that we've had where, you know, for me, I've had a bunch of projects on and have felt very stressed a lot of the time, what with trying to, you know, work from home and whatever. The joy of having somebody with a sense of humour that you work with is just, it's you know, you know how sometimes you wake up and you're doing your job and you think, why aren't I enjoying this? And sometimes it's because you don't have someone that you're working with that you can just have a few gags with. And that honestly is like the mental health super pellet, you know, of our age. So I know how stressful Lee's job is, but like I also know that it can just take one funny gag for her to like feel in the moment, loosened up, like you can control this, like you're absolutely, if you have the power in a situation to have a laugh, it says a lot about your sense of control over the situation and your faith in your own competence as well. Oh, totally. And as Crab says, it's for the mental benefits. Isn't that lovely though? As we get older though, don't you think that's more important to work with people that you really love and that you respect and you enjoy being with as opposed to when you're younger and you think the title and the job and everything else. But the truth is if you work with the right people, everything else falls into place. That is a really good insight, I think. And I don't know that it's even about being older, I think it's sort of about as you get more experienced, you understand how elastic work can be and productivity. And when you're younger, you're just like, well, you're walking into a professional environment where you don't understand how to do everything. Everything seems like a challenge. You're stressed about what do people realize? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a fraud and all that sort of thing. And I remember the first day I walked into work at Parliament House, I was just almost physically assaulted by the awareness of how little I understood about this culture that I was walking into. And so you find your way and you learn the shorthand and you understand more about what you're good at and what you're not good at. And then you realise that you're capable of so much more productive work when you're working with people who make you produce more because you feel better than people that you're fighting every step of the way. So I realised actually mercifully early on in my career that, you know, life is too short to work for someone who doesn't kind of inspire and lead you. Like I'm never going to be a kind of leader of an organisation. I know where I fit. You know, I like to have the freedom to roam around and be periodically told what to do by somebody. I'm fine with that. But I also love working for bosses who, you know, I can have a conversation with and walk out of that conversation with 10 new ideas. And I've been lucky to work with a bunch of people like that in my career. And I find with Lee, you know, the beauty of this podcast is that it doesn't feel like work. She makes it easier. Like if I had to sit down and record an hour's worth of podcast in a day, just me, it would be stressful. I'd have to do all this preparation, whatever. But I know I trust Lee so much and I know exactly what we're capable of when we're together, I could literally walk onto the stage at Sydney Town Hall with Lee, zero prep, and be absolutely confident that we could entertain people for an hour, like right now with no prep. And that is an amazing thing to have in a work partner, right? So much trust and admiration that you know what you're capable of doing together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You touched on something there, Annabelle, I just wanted to go back to imposter syndrome. It's something that we've been examining the whole podcast with, you know, all these fabulous, fabulous women and everybody talks about it. Everybody's had it. Everybody experiences it. Doesn't matter how much experience you get under your belt. I'm just laughing because I just remembered that I once got a letter from somebody who I won't name asking me to be on a panel talking about imposter syndrome. 
And I had to say no anyway because I was just so busy I couldn't find the time, but I wrote back to her and I said, Dear X, thank you so much for your invitation to be on your panel talking about imposter syndrome. Sadly, I don't feel I'm qualified. <laughs> 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 no reply. <laughs> I laugh for days about that. <laughs> That's classic. Oh, I love it. I love it. So let's bring it back just to that topic. What do you do in your head when you walk into a situation and your voice is telling you you can't do this, you crap? How do you deal with that voice? Tips for women out there? Just imagine yourself as a man (laughs) (laughs) equally underqualified and about how he would probably deal with the situation and try and go with that. I had a classic of it this week where there's a workplace I know of where a key job has become available and I was talking to a female friend who I thought would be qualified for the job and she rattled through all of the reasons why, well, I don't know how to do this and I don't do that and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And then a bloke who's eminently, in my view, less qualified, I asked, what do you think? Will you throw your hat in the ring? And he said, oh, why not? (laughs) And all of the research bears that out that, you know, women sort of always look at all the things they can't do, whereas guys look at all the things that they can do. So I guess in answer to your question, I think remembering the things you can do are very useful. I think actually as I'm getting older, I mean, I still do get a bit of imposter syndrome, but I think less so than I used to get when I was younger. That's partly because of experience. And so Often when I'm feeling like I can't do this, I'm going to mess it up, I hope I'd go okay, what I say to myself in reply is, you've done this before, you've done this many times before, you've never messed it up before, you've got all the skills if things go wrong or not as you expect to be able to adapt and cope with that. And so I just try to come back and say, no, don't listen to that voice that tells you that you're no good. Actually, you know exactly what you're doing. You're completely fine. I do still think I'm a fraud and I still doubt myself, but what I try and do is, I mean, in politics especially and media, I'm afraid, you do encounter a lot of utter frauds, like utter frauds. Genuine frauds. <laughs> Genuine frauds, absolutely. But they don't think they're frauds. The, the real frauds never think they're frauds. No. I've just got like a little flip book of them in my head and if I ever feel like I'm a slight fraud, I just have a little flip through that book and I think you're not even in the book, Annabelle, like you are... You're just, you're not competitive in this field. So stop. Oh, I love that. I love that. Compare yourself against people who really are frauds. Yeah. And you think, mate, if that guy can walk out of the house every day, then you are fine, lady. (laughs) Okay. Let's get back to the book. Um, (laughs) Fifty Shades of Grey. I just think it's a really important topic that we should discuss. And and I want to say ahead of time, I talked to Lucy Turnbull last week on this podcast. She's coming up. And if I had read the book before I talked to Lucy, I would have asked her about your safe word, but I wasn't that prepared. (laughs) Obviously, that's a, a cultural phenomenon. And one day we found a day where we both had a couple of hours and we thought we'd better submit ourselves to this phenomenon. So neither of us, I think, has read any of the Fifty Shades of Grey series, but we went to see the movie. <laughs> and um, look, it's sort of attained legendary status, that podcast, and there's a bit of an extract from it in the book. because <laughs> Sales had this, frankly, unspeakable cough. Like this is pre-COVID. It, you know, it was the worst cough I've ever <laughs> had. That. But we, of course, were also, <laughs> apart from hacking coughs, we were also just madly giggling at our response to, you know, all of the scenes. And like the big thing that 
we talked about afterwards through gales of laughter and horrible coughs was, you know, I have a problem with that whole series because of this idea that, you know, secretly women just love to be beaten up. But also the girl in the show, like where were all her mates? Oh, no, I wanted to slap. I had to read the book for book club. Some silly friend picked it for book club. It was the most horrendous read ever. But I loved the line in your book or from your podcast where you say, there's no woman that wouldn't go home and say, I met this hunky guy, but let me tell you about what he asked me to do. (laughs) We would all go and do that. Like it's based on the wrong premise. It was funny. And I remember saying to Crab as well that the whole time I felt like something was wrong here and I'm waiting for something to be revealed. And what I was waiting to be revealed was that he was Batman because (laughs) I've seen that film. You know, the dude, he was like living in this lair. He had a manservant. He had a secret. And I've seen that film and that film is Batman. (laughs) And so... It was, I was kind of like, had this sense of unease the entire time and I realised at a certain point, oh, it's because I'm constantly waiting for him to reveal his secret alter ego is Batman and it's just never happening. So, yeah, it was problematic on many levels, but we just kind of, <laughs> because we were giggling and trading one-liners with each other the whole time, that would have set my cough off even worse. So at key moments where it would be like, you know, a, there was a, I won't go into the full story, Annabelle, so don't panic, but there's a bit where he <laughs> says to her, do you trust me? And that set us off into absolute peals of laughter. And it's a key kind of sexual moment. And then, of course, I'm like, <laughs> it's just dire. I think it's just, you know, we both just like a lot of juggling working parents just have a massively banal response sometimes to culture, whether it's low or high. Like I remember when we got together to watch an episode of Mad Men, was it like a series conclusion or something I don't know but anyway it involved John Hamm having a very sexy encounter on a white sort of bearskin rug with some lover or other and they spilled a glass of red wine on the bearskin rug and we of course both of us could think of nothing but like you've got to get some uh you know soda water on that cocktail, otherwise that's really <laughs> and we were we were so sick of Don Draper's antics by then like he was like I always used to say to Crab it was like I'd had an actual real relationship with Don Draper where in season one I found him like really hot and sexy and kind of mysterious and then by season six when he was having sex with people and spilling his red wine on the carpet all I could think was oh god I am so sick of your shit Don bloody grow up and have some responsibility you know who do you think's going to clean that up like I was just even John Hamm the actor who's so handsome by season six I would look at him and I'd go I can't believe I used to think you were handsome you look like a hound dog you're not handsome at all it was like an actual real relationship that me and John Hamm had had I, I couldn't stand the sight of him by the end I mean that's a great credit to his acting of course that over the transition of the whole of Mad Men I sort of went through this complete sort of thing with poor old John Hamm that's how people get stereotyped I guess yeah although he managed to move from you know hot dude to insufferable dude in, in my eyes so he's covered the full range of stereotypes of guys <laughs> well played John Hamm Let's turn to something serious. So your book is called Well Hello. So people can buy it at all great bookstores, online, everywhere else. Let's leave the book for a second. I want to talk about the next 10 years because on this podcast we've been exploring how women in particular are leading the way in innovation and thinking and new ways of doing things and I'm really interested in your take. The pandemic's thrown us in a situation that none of us have been in before. We've had to think of different ways of doing things, hybrid working, this. I mean, nobody would have thought to do a podcast or an interview like this. Everything's changed in such a short period of time. 
Lee, the next 10 years, what do you think we need to focus on to create better futures, more sustainable futures for everybody? I think one of the key things is inequality because, you know, the pandemic has done a lot to expose that, whether it's, say, gender roles in the home and the fact that, say, in this pandemic, all of the research shows that women have taken a bigger hit, both in terms of employment but also picking up all the homeschooling and responsibilities at home. Even though men have been in the household more, women have still done more of the share of that kind of work. And it's, you know, we're well past time to ask why is that the case? There are plenty of guys out there who are, of course, doing their share, but the research does show a stubborn cohort where a household with a man and a woman the woman is doing more of the domestic load and the childcare load and so forth. And so there's inequality there. There's inequality in terms of the different nature of work that people do and rich people in white collar jobs were mostly able to ride out the pandemic pretty comfortably. People in blue collar jobs who run their own small businesses less so. People who do casualised work and the casualised workforce and gig economy is bigger than ever. The jobs that we were showing that we really, really need, childcare, nurses, bus drivers, checkout operators, the the genuine essential work, that's the work that's paid the least. They're the people that took the most risk to their health during the pandemic so the rest of us could continue to order, you know, food delivered to our door and so forth. And so I think, you know, the real challenge over the next 10 years is to try in Australia and around the world, but but if we use Australia as the example, to try to stop that gap from becoming bigger And it has become bigger in the United States. The middle class has really shrunk in the United States over the past 20 years. That hasn't been the case in Australia up to the sort of most recent data I've looked at, which is a couple of years ago. And so we need to try to make sure that inequality doesn't become entrenched. I know, say, for example, when I was a kid, you could go to the local state school, which is what I did, and you'd get a good education and that kind of helped level the playing field a bit. You know, we need to make sure state schools are resourced so that that still is the actual case. A lot more people now send their kids to private school than when I was coming through school. So we need to make sure that's not at the expense of the public education system, because that's just, I think, an absolutely key thing for people in terms of being able to overcome sometimes disadvantage in their background. So we want to ensure that there's equal opportunity and not entrenched disadvantage for certain subsets of the community, whether it's to do with race, economic class, um, social class, gender, all of those things. I, I think that's, you know, the next big challenge. I know lots of people would, of course, say climate change, which is another key challenge that we have to look at. But I think, you know, inequality is a very, very big problem. And, you know, you raise social class or socioeconomic background. The DCA did a report that showed that actually we always talk about gender inequality and multiculturalism and, uh, you know, different types of diversity, but actually socioeconomic class is the biggest driver of exclusion in the workplace. Yeah, I I look even, you know, in our newsroom, and and I've made this point internally in the ABC, when we talk about diversity, we also have to talk about diversity of people from backgrounds who didn't go to university to study journalism and, and have, you know, a degree, because you get a certain cohort of people, even if they come from different cultural backgrounds, the mere fact that they've, you know, had the means to go and get a university education means that there's a certain commonality there. So if you just end up with all people that have gone to private schools and gone to Sydney Uni and that's where your cohort of people comes from, it's a problem. You want people that left school in grade 12 but maybe or grade 10 even but that they've got 
street smarts and good people skills and things like that that translate into journalism because you can teach the skills of journalism but what you can't teach is people's different life experience and and people having an understanding say of what it's like to be a single mother on the single mother's pension um, or what it's like to live in a family where dad's been unemployed or what it's like to be in a family where mum's a single mum living on welfare and dad's been in prison like you know we, we need people like that to be in journalism because you tend to think of stories which kind of reflect where you come from and what's in your world. And so if you don't understand the experience of, say, caring for somebody with a disability, then that doesn't present itself to you as a story because it's like an invisible part of the world to you. So we need all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds to come through, and that includes people who aren't coming in highly educated. Yeah, I think that that analysis, um, which was Flawless, actually. Lee just said everything that I would like to say under my own name. Um, But that same model applies to Parliament as well, actually, because, you know, we have a real diversity problem in the Parliament, which we often talk about in terms of gender diversity. And sometimes they're not very often ethnic diversity. But realistically, all the research now tells us that diverse groups of people make better decisions. And you have such a preponderance of people in Parliament who have got there through the political system, been political staffers, been lawyers or, you know, whatever, that it makes for a national decision-making body that sometimes just has no personal experience of the situations that they're making decisions on. I'll never forget one night when we were filming The House, the documentary series we made about Parliament House, sitting and listening to Jackie Lambie, who was... There was a oh, some sort of welfare-adjacent um, amendment that was going through and she was talking about remembering what it was like to go shopping and not be able to afford the stuff that was in her basket and have to go and, you know, put stuff back on the shelves. And I thought, do you know, I reckon there wouldn't be that many people in this parliament that would have personal experience of how that feels. And so she's a really important member of that parliament, I think, because she does a lot of heavy lifting to try and open her colleagues' eyes to the reality of what it's like to live on welfare. Yeah, and it goes to show you don't have to agree with all the views that are in front of you in that diverse group of people, but having lived experience of different types is really, really key. So I'm conscious of time. You are both racing off to an in-studio appearance. So I'm going to leave the last words to you. Last messages, Lee. Um, I think one of the things that our book and our podcast has been about is about thinking of other people and kindness and a sense of community and sense of connection with other human beings. And I think that for all the millions of self-help books that get written about happiness and fulfilment and success and, you know, all of the rest of it, I think it sounds a bit cliched, but it really does, I think, in the end, boil down to your relationships with other people. And I think that fits with quite a lot of what we've talked about today around, for example, work and what makes a satisfying job. It's, It's partly the content of the job, but a huge amount of it is the contact that you're having with other humans as you're doing it, female friendships and the important role that that plays in keeping you happy and having a feeling of well-being. And I, I think for Crab and I, one of the things that we've found gratifying about the podcast is that I feel like we've actually done something good in that we created something that has enabled people to make connections with other humans and help them out and give them comfort and company and all sorts of things like that. And so when I think about the podcast, I'm always happy that, you know, it's funny and it's fun for us and it gives people a laugh. But I think the thing that gives me the most sense of gratitude for it is the fact that it has allowed a lot of people to feel like they have friends, I guess, in us and in our company, but also in the other people who are in the fan base of that podcast. 
Yeah, I would um, associate myself with all of those sentiments and I guess my parting message would be, Buy the book and buy it for all of your friends. <laughs> it's a, it's no, a great no. Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At the end, there's really only one message and one reason we're doing this, which is please go out and buy a copy of Well Hello. Look, I mean, really, you couldn't meet anyone who had more reservations about this book and the idea of it for me. I mean, I've constantly underestimated the appeal of this podcast, the live show, the Facebook group, all along the way. I'm like, people really be interested in that and when the book idea came up I'm like really would anyone be interested in that and I am the first now to admit that largely thanks to the skill and genius of our co-author Miranda Murphy um, who's another great person to work with it really is pretty good like I actually really enjoyed reading it and laughed out loud a bunch of times so you know I thought it was going to be rubbish and it really isn't so get it Lisa and Adam Crab, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real hoot. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Shelley. What a joy that conversation was. Annabelle and Lee personify the importance of strong female friendships and how much we need our girlfriends to make us laugh, share a shoulder, and just get through our shambolic lives the best we can. I love that they normalise the craziness of everything the house of cards that we all live and the madness of juggling home, work, children, me time, friends and everything else. They never try and make it sound easy. They say what we are all thinking. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons podcast produced by Alison Ho and made available through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. See you next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.